Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here. It, it is common when discussing world poverty to hear about the enormous challenges that exist in, in the developing world, from treating uh, widespread diseases to the lack of housing to uh, inadequate uh, education or even the lack of educational opportunities and so on, and that's certainly understandable. But the, the picture that the public often gets is one more dismal than the reality. I remember reading an article not too long ago about uh, economic reforms in Peru in the last 20 years, and it mentioned that despite those changes, poverty in Peru was still at something like 28%. It did not mention that the poverty rate had been cut in half in the, in the past uh, 10 years. And that's unfortunately uh, very common in dealing with a lot of the issues related to the developing world. So there's often a, a big gulf between the reality and the public uh, perception on issues of human progress. And indeed, the last several decades of globalization has seen the biggest uh, reduction in world poverty that the world has ever seen, which has been accompanied, of course, by improvements in the whole range of human development uh, indicators. The bias toward downplaying that progress uh, can be found in the development uh, community and in the work of uh, development economists who uh, much of the time overstate the case for their latest uh, foreign aid or development fad. Thus, by the estimation of many prominent economists, the World Bank exaggerates the extent of world poverty, for example. The push for a massive aid program to save Africa uh, and to pull Africa out of poverty, the claims made on behalf of microfinance, and the new fascination with the so-called uh, randomized controlled trials uh, as a reliable guide for, for what works in, de in development around the world are just some other examples. Both the reality of human progress and the myths that have come up around the business of alleviating poverty uh, are well, well covered in this book that we are pleased to publish at the Cato Institute, Poverty and Progress, Realities and Myths About Global Poverty. And uh, the author uh, I am pleased to introduce is Deepak Lal. Deepak is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and he has long been a dissenter, to use uh, Peter Bauer's words, in development uh, economics. At least since the, the late 1970s, he has been a dissenter pro after many years of, of working in places like the Indian Planning Commission. Uh, and of course, uh, his, his work critiquing development economics in the foreign aid industry is well known. Uh, in the early 1980s, uh, he published uh, The Poverty of Development Economics, which had a big influence. Uh, in the thinking and came out just around the time when new thinking uh, was being informed by the reality of the failure of, of development planning. And yet, in the development community, there are always uh, new ideas about what uh, the dirigists, as Deepak likes to call them, have in mind in order to, to save humanity. This book discusses both the progress in the world and uh, some of those uh, development fads. Deepak is the James S. Coleman Professor em Emeritus at, uh, of International Development Studies at the University of California at Los Angeles. Uh, and he's the author of uh, a number of books. I mentioned one of them. Uh, the others include The Hindu Equilibrium, Against Dirigism, The Political Economy of Poverty, Equity and Growth, uh, unintended Consequences and Reviving the Invisible Hand. He is also a regular uh, columnist in uh, newspaper Business Standard in India and in other places. Please help me welcome Deepak Lal. Thanks, Ian. This, this book, in some senses, uh, Gives me a tremendous writing, a tremendous sense of deja vu, but also great sadness. Now, I've been on this game of sort of working in developing countries the last 50 years. And when I was writing this, one of the things which impressed me was just looking back at my own life, 
the world has changed in the most remarkable way, which if you told me in as late as 1980 or even sort of mid-1980s, when I was working at the World Bank, that within the course of about 20 or 30 years, poverty, which had been a scar all around the world, would really have become a problem for very small number of mismanaged African states. I'd say you're mad. You just said that the second, the, the so-called countries of really existing socialism, second world, used to be called, they would implode. I'd say you're mad. So in a sense, this great transformation which has taken place in my lifetime has actually meant that for the first time in human history, you know, the old biblical thing, the poor will always be, be with us, that is no longer true. <coughs> but the thing which was sad was reading the academic literature of sort of fellow development, really the young, and they have no feeling, they have no understanding of this incredible change which has happened. And one of the puzzles is why, uh, despite this, they, they continue regard, they disregard this, and they're continually finding new bells and whistles to revive completely discredited theories. So half of this book is only looking at this new, newfangled stuff, which I don't recommend you read, but you might get a flavor of what they're, what they're up to, and how most of this is completely unconvincing and unpersuasive. Now, the good thing is <coughs> uh, that unlike the 70s and even early parts of the 80s, when many people in the third world found this persuasive, I think this is less, much, much less so now. So unlike their aged peers who promoted the religious dogma and really kept the world's poor in poverty a long time, I don't think this is going to happen this time around. And there are two reasons for this. The first is that we've had in the developing world, you know, in the old days, in some senses, the developing world was a place where all the ideological battles in the West were fought out by proxies, one, one, one form or the other. Now there's a plenty of people in the third world who see through this. And what do they see through? They see a big lobby. I call them the Lords of Poverty, which has been created in the West, <laughs> partly through foreign aid, but also through one-issue NGOs, uh, through which many middle-class people and our children make a very decent living. And they don't want to see the single issue on which <laughs> they make this living disappear, i.e. poverty. So they have a, they have a genuine self-interest <laughs> in keeping poverty alive, both rhetorically and to the extent they can succeed in having the DDG's policies implemented in actuality. <laughs> so how is this great transformation taking place? And it's not a great mystery. I think there are three major processes. The one, the first one, of course, is what led the West in its great ascent in poverty. Now, if you go back through history, one of the major constraints on getting unending growth, rises in per capita income, was that we always hit the land constraint. <laughs> and why was that? Because every form of energy you can think of, uh, mechanical energy, for instance, that you needed horses, you know, or the, or the heat energy, again, wood, proto-industrial, all, all these depended upon the products of land. And because land was in fixed supply, that meant that you had diminishing returns. And at some stage, these growth imp, this growth input speeded out. Now, the great discovery was effective with the, the learning how to use fossil fuels, which despite all the chit-chat, there's still, now we know, they still unbounded the supply of that. I mean, our shale gas, all this talk of peak oil, etc., has disappeared. And this bounty, nature's bounty, is what first led the West and now the rest to ascend from poverty. So you get unending per capita income growth, which was not possible until the, the, this nature's bounty, as it were, could be unlocked. And in fact, the greatest danger now to the remaining world's poor is what I call these, well, I don't want to use the term which I normally use, 
but they're eco-imperialists who want to, in fact, prevent the third world from using fossil fuels and all this stuff about carbon emissions, etc., putting a limit to that. Okay, now, so that was the first. And the third world is learned how to. The second, of course, and this is taking a long time, this is the adoption of a policy package which 19th century Britain adopted under Gladstone. And this consisted of free trade, stable money, and fiscal balance. Now, you, when you think about it, it's such a simple, it's not, it's nothing, it's not, a, it's a, not, there's no great intellectual achievement in realizing it, but it's taken a long, long time for countries in the world to accept this. And as we see in this country today, it's still not accepted. So it is not something which can be <coughs> taken as granted, even though it's so obvious. But that is the second component. And the third, of course, <coughs> was the process of globalization, which linked the world for one time, for the first time in the 19th century under the British, and then in the second part of the 20th century under the Americans. And this allowed the worldwide expansion of trade and commerce. Now, it was in the first period of globalization that you first saw the whiffs of what I call Promethean growth. That means a rise from, uh, uh, you know, the sort of stable, fairly extensive growth you saw in the previous millennia. You saw the first whiffs of modern economic growth in many third world countries. But that period came to an end with the First World War, one of the most un unnecessary wars in history. And then this process of poverty reduction, which had started in the 19th century, sort of ended. And you had, a back, you had some backsliding to the interwar years. Then in the, after the Second World War, the Third World, as it was called, because it felt it had been burnt in this interwar period, did not embrace the globalization which was being promoted by the West under US leadership. It was only in the 1980s, beginning with Deng Xiaoping's opening of China, the Latin American debt crisis, which forced many countries under World Bank and IMF tutelage to embrace this sort of classical liberal policy package. And in 1991, India, which finally moved away from plan to market. Now, all these conversions were imperfect. I must, you know, it's not full-blooded like the 19th century liberal order be created, but that was sufficient to lead to this greatest transformation in human history, the real ending of, of poverty. Now, there are a lot of Jeremiah's who, you, if you read all around, you know, academics, newspapers, etc., who said, oh, it's all very well, but all this growth which globalization has uh, promoted is not pro-poor, the wretched benefit, tremendous inequality. Now, all the evidence, and I, I, it's all cited, you can see. Now, one of the best estimates I know of, and don't take the World Bank and IMF, they're completely party free. They're parts of the Lords of Poverty. The two people I trust, my old friend, Angus Madison, who unfortunately is dead, and my young firebrand colleague and friend, Sujit Bala. So they've done a lot of work on this, and they've estimated that between 1980 and 2000, if you take the developing world as a whole, the poor increased their income twice as fast as those who were not poor. So growth is not merely trickled down in this second globalization period, it's been a flood. What is more, <coughs> this unprecedented reduction in mass poverty has also led to a conversion in other measures of well-being, literacy, nutrition, life expectancy, infant mortality, at a much more rapid rate than has happened in the West or any other period of human history. So we can actually look forward, if you don't disturb or don't ruin these processes, ongoing processes of globalization, the policy package using fossil fuels, that poverty can, in fact, be ended. Uh, <coughs> the only, the only uh, I suppose, the only fly in the ointment, and that's why it can't be completely polyannish, I mean, the glass can be looked upon as half empty, half full, is that there are many countries, and these are mainly in Africa, where even the basic public goods of law and order, some sort of a you know, functioning state do not exist. And unless you, be, unless you can impose some sort of order, which I don't think can be done from outside, you have to hope that in the natural process, uh, people sort of learning, some sort of order will emerge. 
Now, the most important part of the world where still suffers from what I call these four horsemen of apocalypse is Africa. But even here, uh, things seem to be changing. Many of these countries now see that both the old foreign aid and the new, uh, what can one call it, the new Chinese enticements offered by this new form of neo-imperialism, which you might, some Africans call it the China. Both of these are poison chalices, and they are not willing to accept this anymore. So they themselves are turning away from this, and they now rightly seek to pension off these lords of poverty. They also seem to have learned from some of their past mistakes. My classic example is Ghana. Ghana was driven into the pits, and now, you know, it changes spots, the same rulings, would driven it down into this hole, then reversed course. Or in, or in Latin America, Garcia, who I saw had dug a deep hole for Peru in the 1980s, now is overseeing one of his biggest booms. So, so even these failed leaders learn, so that's one hope. And what can the world do? Forget about saving Africa, forget about martial plans, all these. The money, all the evidence, the money does be stolen by predatory African elites, this, and you didn't get nothing in return. So what can the world do? The most important thing is to keep our capital markets and markets for goods and services, open trade, open capital markets, and let the continents, entrepreneurial multitudes, and there are millions of them, who are just waiting to take this chance, as they have in the other parts of the world. And they will, in time, learn how to keep their predatory rulers in some sort of check. And then, I have no doubt in my mind, that Africa, Africa, too, can participate in this great transformation, which has, for the first time, ended mass poverty in other parts of the developing world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deepak. Our next speaker is Marcus Noland, who is a senior fellow and director <laughs> of studies at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He, his expertise is in Asia and Africa, where he has lived and worked, and also on the Middle East. He has written uh, too many books on those regions and topics related to that to, to mention. He has previously been a senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors and has taught at Yale University, Johns Hopkins University, the University of Southern California, the University of Ghana, Korea Development Institute, and, and so on. He is just returning from a trip to Myanmar and Ghana, and so we are especially pleased that he somehow found the time to read Deepak's book along the way. Please help me welcome Marcus Noland. Thank you very much. It is an honor and a pleasure to participate in today's events. Um, I don't always agree with Professor Lal, uh, but I always find his work erudite and entertaining, and his latest book is no exception. When Ian asked me if I could participate in today's event, I immediately responded yes. My only concern was, as he indicated, I was about to leave for Myanmar, and I would like to receive the book before my departure so I could read it while I was there. As it happened, somehow I didn't receive the book before I left for Myanmar, but I was able to obtain it in the few days I was back here in Washington before uh, leaving to, for Ghana to visit my wife's family there. So the upshot is that I read the book in a coffee shop in Accra, uh, having just come from Myanmar. And those two countries were in the front of my mind as I read the book, and I will return to them uh, in a moment. As Deepak has explained, the book is organized into two parts, uh, realities and myths. The first part, realities, covers the basic factual material about the nature of poverty around the world. It is hard to argue with this material. Mass poverty has clearly declined over time, and primitive indicators of well-being, such as literacy or life expectancy, have improved at even a more rapid rate than income-based measures of welfare. Income is not the whole story, however. 
There is a large and growing literature on the determinants of happiness or self-assessed life satisfaction that examines correlations between subjective measures of happiness and measurable characteristics at either the household, individual, or national level. While these studies cannot establish causality, simply cause uh, correlation, there are a number of relatively robust findings uh, in most of the reported results that accord with intuition. As might be expected, happiness is associated with health status and income, both at the individual and the national level. More rapid growth in GDP per capita, holding constant the level of per capita income, is also associated with greater happiness. Evidence on the role of positional goods and inequality is mixed in these studies. Even more than income, however, happiness studies find that unemployment is a major determinant of unhappiness. Besides the obvious characteristic that employment enables individuals to support themselves and their families, employment also provides a source of self-respect, and for many, an important network of supportive social relations. A second contributor to happiness that may be more important than income is good governance, encompassing, encompassing both notions of competence in the delivery of services, as well as accountability. At lower levels of income, subjective assessments of satisfaction are more highly correlated with government effectiveness, regulatory quality, rule of law, and control of corruption. As income rises, voice and stability come to the fore. It may well be that in these statistical correlations with happiness, the governance indicators are acting as proxies for a broader set of societal institutions and speak to broader and more diffuse notions of belonging and inclusion rather than the simple functioning of government per se. This may be associated with rapid transitions from agrarian to urban residents, the attenuation of social anchor provided by rural life, and the weakness of urban in institutions in low-income countries to cope with this phenomenon. It may also be that inequality contributes to poor governance, thereby conflating the impact of positional goods or envy with the quality of governance, and thus contributing to the apparently inconsistent results that the various studies have obtained. In sum, money cannot buy happiness, though it helps. Employment, which is tightly bound to notions of worth and respect, both in one's own eyes and in those of others, is even more important. And the quality of government, which may be a proxy for a broader set of social institutions, counts as well. And if positional goods are important, then Jesus was right. The poor will always be among us. The second part of the book, Myths, is in large part a critique of the current state of development economics. Again, I largely agree with this critique. What was less clear to me was whether Deepak saw any role for organizations such as the World Bank, an institution that he seems to believe once did good, but has now gone astray which brings me back to Myanmar and Ghana. Sitting in the coffee shop in Accra reading the book, I was reminded of an event from some years ago. I was at home here in Washington one afternoon when I received a telephone call from my late mother-in-law in Accra, who asked me whether I thought it would be better for Ghana to obtain debt relief through the HIPIC initiative that was the highly indebted poor country initiative for those of you who have forgotten, recognizing that doing so might incur reputational costs that would result in Ghana paying a premium on future borrowing international capital markets, or whether it would be better to continue to pay down the country's debt on the existing terms. I answered this question as best I could, but before ending the conversation, I couldn't help but ask my high school educated mother-in-law what had compelled me, her to call me with what was after all a fairly sophisticated question about international finance. She responded that the decision about whether to go forward with the HIPAA initiative was a major issue in Ghana, and having been exposed to opposing views in newspapers and through radio discussion shows, she was undecided about which course was advisable. So she had decided to solicit the view of her economist son-in-law, who after all had once taught international finance at the University of Ghana. 
What struck me about this exchange was the reminder that at least parts of the mass media in Ghana supported serious public policy debates, that these were not the exclusive preserve of insiders or elites, and that there were structures in place to hold the state at least somewhat accountable for its actions. Which brings me to Myanmar. Ghana and Myanmar are not so dissimilar in certain respects. Both are multi-ethnic former British colonies with histories of uninspiring military rule. In recent years, both countries have discovered oil and both now face the issue of how to manage and develop this resource. Now, to be clear, Ghana scores sort of mediocre in the, in the sort of governance indicators that uh, Deepak reproduces in chapter nine in his book. It's not Norway or Denmark. Um, but since a democratic transition in the 1980s, it has made steady improvements in those governance indicators. Myanmar, in contrast, has stagnated. For Myanmar, Today, attaining the status of contemporary Ghana would represent an improvement in almost every conceivable economic and political dimension. My sense is that broadly speaking in this book, Deepak has sketched out the necessary, though perhaps not the sufficient, mm -hmm. conditions for development. So in conclusion, my questions for him would be what role he sees, if any, for outside public institutions, whether they be multilateral development banks or foreign national governments, for encouraging the expansion of freedom and the reduction of poverty, they're at the heart of the book. For encouraging Myanmar to become more like Ghana. Not Norway or Denmark, just Ghana. Or does he see no role for the public sector at all? In closing, I would like to thank Ian and the Cato Institute for inviting me to participate in this event. And I would like to thank Professor Deepak Alal for writing such an erudite and entertaining volume. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thanks very much. I don't know, Deepak, if you want to respond to any of that right now or uh, no, no, take some let's, questions let's and then the in the process yeah. find out what you really think about the World Bank. If you have <laughs> a um, question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone and then identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll take the first question there, please. Right, right here. O'Day Aberdeen, the Capital Trust Group from London. Speak up just a little bit, please. As I listen to both of you, I didn't hear the word education in terms of reducing poverty and better governance. How does education, what role does education play in reducing poverty, I think is, is the question. Why don't we take the question? Uh, okay, let, let, let me just start. I mean, the, the education is very, very important. And one of the most important things which has happened is, if you look at the convergence, compared with the West, of third world countries and all the indices of education. I mean, it's, it's, it hasn't got as much as many people want, but it's converging at a very, very rapid rate. Now, you can argue about the quality of education, but having taught in U.S. universities, I could argue about the quality of education here after, you know, one of the highest countries in the world. So one can't, you know, so even these crude indicators still tell you that uh, things are growing very much better. And that is, in answer to it, what... Uh, Marcus was saying, Ghana, you see, and so I, Burma I can't speak of, but Ghana I know, talking of education, when it became independent, unlike many other parts of the country, it had a much, much more highly educated, you know, general, but also higher education. That fellow of all souls, when I arrived in Oxford, there were two, three Ghanaians whose name I've now forgotten, they were fellow of all souls, Oxford. So the long tradition of this, and then of course, you know, so, so you had this, and the question is, this is now spreading. I mean, in countries, even in China, you'll find that people are now, they do it on blogs, they can't do it in mass media. So these discussions are taking place, and this is a big hope, that over time, even in Africa, these predatory elites will be kept, kept in check by a better educated public. The spread of the mobile phone, cell phone, that is absolutely extraordinary, all over, all over Africa, and India, China, and these are all instruments of progress, in my view. May I add one thing to that? Yep. Um, 
I do this with a certain amount of hesitancy. Uh, I didn't go into the book in great detail, but one of the things that uh, Deepak apparently really hates are cross-country growth regressions. But uh, <laughs> the one thing I would add is that if you look at, at, at this literature, the single most robust correlate between economic performance and indeed other, some other aspects of governance and political performance is not just education, but it's female education. Yeah, that's true. Um, and and I, I, I tend to regard these regressions as, as a, more of a kind of supplement or reality check to one's thinking, but it, it's pretty clear that if women can read, then they can read nutritional labels, they can read their children's school plans, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's some pretty obvious connections between female literacy uh, and ability to more effectively uh, 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 parent or raise children. And so I would, I would simply emphasize it's not just education, but, but women's education seems to have a particularly important uh, role to play. Question there. Hi, Doug Brooks, um, consultant now. Um, I guess the question I'd have, uh, you talked about the lords of poverty and, and the, the practices that have been quite harmful. And I guess my question would be, what are the two or three worst uh, practices that are essentially foisted on countries that, that essentially undermine their ability to, uh, to reduce poverty? One or two. <laughs> well, it's a whole ethos. You know, the basic problem is, is dependency. You've got all these people there who thinks they know the answer. Of course, not just that. They're, you go to any developing country, especially in Africa, there are 50 different agencies trying to compete for the same thing. Apart from the fact they're wasting civil servants' time, they're making all these people dependent. That's one. The second is that the, very often, uh, I mean, the aid never gets to who you want to do. And there's no, there's no sort of, uh, what can one call it? There's no sort of transparency in how the thing is used. There's no accountability to the people giving it. They don't learn from past mistakes. So, you know, in fact, if they make, they keep repeating the same mistake again and again. So it's completely worthless. Then you ask yourself, why on earth are they playing this game? Why on earth are they playing the game? And the only answer is pretty profitable. I mean, the only other institution which I can think of, which has had a huge impact and done very well for itself, is another multinational institution. I've been trying to get graduate students to write an essay on this for years, a thesis on this, and it's a Catholic church. It's lasted for two millennia. It has an absolutely first-rate product. What is it selling? Salvation, okay? And that means that, and it's stuck by its, it's stuck by its core thing. I didn't shilly shally change that. And in some senses, you can look upon the laws of poverty. They're selling something, but now, unfortunately, Salvation is a much more universal and timeless end than poverty is. Maybe they believe that poverty will never go away, so they, they can keep making a decent living. But I'm afraid they're soon going to be pension office. I would, it's a declining industry. I wouldn't send my grandchildren to join it if they could. Yeah. In the back. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Paul Davis, and I'm a visiting scholar here in DC from Norway. Thank you for mentioning Norway. Uh, my question is on Africa, though. Uh, the World Bank, uh, or actually WTO, released a report a couple of years ago stating that as little as 8 to 10% of African trade is intra-regional. Uh, what we have realized in Norway, since we opened up for 100% toll and quota free access for the least developed countries, is that these countries do not, are not able to export to the European markets. Uh, so simultaneously, we should, we should focus on how to boost intra-regional trade. Uh, do you see any promising initiatives in, in Africa uh, on this? And are there any specific countries or regions that you would like to mention? Thank you. You're sorry, intra-regional trade or inter-region? Intra-within within Africa, you're talking of trade or within Africa? But there have been terrible problems right through. I mean, you know, there have been all these vast plans to try and link Africa by road, by, you know, waterways, etc. And the Chinese have had, I think, am I wrong? Haven't they got something to build these things from South Africa all the way up to the Suez Canal? So there are all these plans there. And they will help. But you know, if you look at Africa, I mean, until a few years ago, you couldn't, if you had to travel from one African country to the next, 
The only way to get there was to fly back to Europe or some other hub and then fly down there. So, you know, that's changing, but at a very slow rate. So effectively, the transport links with all the other things which you need to have international, inter-regional trade don't exist. So things are still being shipped around. But I think that's changing. And, you know, gradually this will happen. But in fact, the, the most important thing is for the West and all the rest of the world to keep their markets open for African goods and services and capital markets open. I think that is happening. As long as that continues, there's no limit to how much, how fast Africa can grow. Right there. Hi, my name is Lexi Vankovic. I'm from the Federalist Society. And I was just wondering if, um, in light of uh, Mr. Lau, you just mentioning that dependency is one of the, the biggest problems that, um, you know, issues that we face um, regarding international... Sorry, I couldn't follow that. What? Oh, you mentioned that dependency was, yeah. was one of the biggest problems that we face um, regarding issues of international development. I was wondering if I could e get each of your thoughts on uh, microfinancing um, of or uh, that organizations uh, give to, um, to developing countries such as... Um, uh, Opportunity International in regards to um, Nicaragua. Um, Sorry, I, I didn't I get your question. Microfinancing. Micro micro yeah, if I could just get your yeah. thoughts on microfinancing. Well, look, my, like all these things, microfinancing, I mean, you know, microfinancing started off as, when Grameen Bank, he was just helping one individual, you know, it started with a good idea. Now, all these things are then taken over by ideologues various other people. Now, if you, if the evidence, I can't, I don't remember it now. I'm working on other books. I forget all this like, old baby, all this. But the evidence all shows that, in fact, if you compare the microfinance institutions as uh, intermediaries in finances, like, let's say, to the poor, and things like what are the interest costs, what are the actual costs of providing this accessible loans, et cetera, with ordinary commercial banks, Quite often, the commercial banks do just as well, if not better. And it, if it wasn't for the public subsidies, direct or indirect, I mean, it could be cha voluntary charities which are giving their money, this would be completely unviable. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. Now, the funny thing is this has a tremendous echo in what was called the problem of farm credit in India. And there was a thing, long thing going back, back to the British, rather, the darlings who wrote uh, the, the ICS, civil servants who wrote a study saying how the moneylenders, rural moneylenders, were sort of bloodsuckers who were really sucking the blood out of all the peasantry in Punjab, et cetera, and how you must stop that. Now, then various studies were done, and it turned out, and you know, then that corporators, banks started to do it, and none of these, they found out that the, the, the moneylenders in these places were the most, most effective people to monitor these loans. Why? Because they had local information, which is absolutely crucial in judging who you should lend to, making sure you got the money back. And the reason their interest rates were so high, because that was the cost of credit of the getting money from the banks. So, so the question was, there was no alternative as it were, which was much more superior than what you actually had, which had developed organically and naturally. Now, the thing about microfinance is there are many aspects of microfinance, which are, you know, chit funds, revolving credit, all this. These go back millennia. A lot of countries have had these. And I wouldn't want to end those, but those are spontaneous institutions that have grown up. But on top of that now, if you've got Barclays, Citibank, et cetera, setting up huge microcredit corporations, et cetera, I mean, all the evidence is these don't do anything much. And the only reason they work, to some extent, is because they're, either, you know, part of that, what do they call Social corporate responsibility mandate to the right this off, or they're getting subsidies from governments to face other people to make this cheaper. So they're not actually viable. So, so it's a mixed picture. I mean, what I want to say, it's not, do not take this micro, micro even though, uh, what's his name, Mohammed Yunus is a saint, but I don't, don't take any of this as a, as a panacea for, for the third world. Right there, question right there. If I may, I'd like to ask two questions. Uh, you identify yourself, please. I'm Dan Silverstein, I'm a consultant. Um, I read about, before coming here, I read about extreme poverty and hunger. And as I recall the statistics, um, there are 850 million people who are uh, suffering from extreme poverty and hunger. A child dies every six seconds, 25,000 people a day. Do you think that those statistics are overstated? And would you talk generally about the, the aggregate number of people who are suffering from poverty? And the second question is, what role would agricultural development play in building 
uh, economic growth. On these aggregate numbers, my, an my answer is people keep suiciding. I say compared to what? Compared to what? Compared to the numbers of people who are starving and not with mal malnourished 20, 30 years ago as a percentage? Compared to what? So the question is, if you take a point in time, you've got a declining curve, and you take a point in, I'll take time. I mean, you can't, you can't banish poverty, and no one's been able to do it overnight. So it's a, it's a declining trend. As long as that continues, and the rate, the speed at which it's declining is so rapid that you can predict that over time, it's going to disappear. But of course, there'll be hungry people, there'll be poor people on this road still, until that happens. We've got poor, we've got poor people and hungry people sitting in this richest country in the world. So in that sense, the poor and hungry will never disappear. But you know, but they also the, but this these statistics are completely and utterly misleading. And this idea that there's a lot of food around and we still go hungry, and the answer there is public policy. India has got tons and tons of food rotting in its growdowns, the so-called public distribution system, and they still say all these people are hungry and we can't do it. So there's no shortage of food. And a lot of these things, when you come down to it, you come down to failed public policies. But if you look at these aggregate numbers and trends, there's no point just looking at a static number at the time. Compared to what? What about agriculture? Oh, that's, that's been happening. But there, the major threat now is, uh, well, again, from the Greens. I mean, in many parts of the world, in India, I call them rice Christians. You know, they've got the local, Greenpeace, local, local things getting money. And they've started a whole thing against GM foods. Okay, so GM cotton, which would be a lifesaver for many, I mean, many farmers won't want, want to grow because it, 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 the, the uh, output is greater because it kills all the pests. Now, China has no qualms, so they've adopted GM crops in all the way. But in India, because it's still a democracy, their court cases are still in the Supreme Court trying to prevent even trials for many of the GM crops. But that's the next stage. You have to have that. That's the next stage of the Green Revolution, if you like. And until these, so, you know, they're, they're a complete menace. I mean, if you want one simple thing, which I wouldn't do, I'm not, I'm a dictator. A dictator just banish all these one-issue NGOs. In that sense, Putin has done it. I don't agree with him, but I can see his point. Yes, right here in the middle. Thank you. Gerald Chandler. Uh, could you tell me what, as people get out of poverty, they prefer to spend their money on? What are the proportions? Do they spend it more on education or clothing or health or what? And then is there a virtuous circle? As you eat better, can you now get even higher out of poverty as you get educated more? Can you even get higher out of poverty? Well, these, these are all, some of these are quite surprising. I mean, you feel, see the figures here. One of the surprising things is that people even you know, at, at the poverty level, they do not spend their money on food. They spend their money, a fair amount of their food, on what you call happiness, goods, high entertainment, festivals. And, you know, it's very surprising, some of this stuff. So as, as incomes rise, one of the things that does, do, does change, and this is happening in India, for instance, now, is that people stop, switch from coarser grains, like, you know, millets and things like that, to superior superior grains, this, they buy, start buying meat, dairy products, and all this. Now, many nutritionists argue it's bad because, you know, actually the, actually the nutritional content of the switch in food is bad. That's why most people are obese here in India, they're not, but still. So one can argue about that. But, but, the, but the, it, is not, it is not as if your normal stereotype, is people have more money, they'll eat better. That does not, not necessarily follow. Uh, on education, I think that certainly, all the evidence now is, well, there are two, two facts here. Public education in most of these third world countries has failed. The teachers don't attend schools. There are no textbooks. So what has happened is that because even the poor value education, they see, the, see this as a great ladder, there's been a growth of private schools. James Tooley has done a book for you on this. He's one, and you know, anywhere you go, you find these lowest, the, the poorest of the poor, putting aside a few pennies to send their children to private schools which have, which have come up. Now, it's true that the standards aren't all that good, but at least the teachers are there. The kids actually know how to read and write, and now they're introducing computers. So there's a great demand because people recognize the value of this. 
and this is taking place, I think, all over the third world, whatever you, you know, whatever you can do this. Africa, slums, he documents this, you find people spending whatever meager income they have, putting their children through schools, private schools, not the state schools. So the best thing you could do in the third world, if you believe in education, close all the state schools and do what Milton Friedman used to advocate of America, give vouchers to, the, to every single poor child to go to whatever school he can go to. Right here in the front. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, formerly of U.S. Department of Agriculture. Interesting to me, when these people come out of poverty, are there the facilities to take care of them? You talked about education. Do they live in better housing? Do they have better social services, better medical services, better roads, better markets, so on? Or, or has that not happened simultaneously? Well, if you're, the answer, answer to that is it is happening, and it's a mixture. But the most important thing which is happening is, again, some of these things which you consider your public service, like medical. I mean, in India, I can give sight for the same stories in schools. The public medical institutions, which they job, absorb a fair amount of money, are bust. The fact that they're not. They're, doctors don't appear, and they go into private practice. The, the, the drugs, etc. So, effectively, what you've got is the parallel private medical system, which has grown up. And most people, I think, can't remember the figures, but 60 or 70 percent of medical expenditure in India, even amongst the poorest, is in private, or the private sector. So, there again, the same story as you find in education applies. Because the state is completely incapable of providing these in an efficient way, people are finding alternatives. And the great thing is, as they grow richer, these alternatives are more easily available. Right there in the back. Igor Gimbitsky from the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, thank you so much. And um, I, have, I have a question. So. Um, what role does private charity have uh, in the developing world? And if I were to want to invest in some kind of private charitable initiatives, what would be the best bang for my dollar, essentially? Best bang? Best, best bang for my dollar. What would be the most effective uh, poverty alleviating private charitable initiatives? Well, you know, the Hudson Institute has started collecting data on this. And the total amount, I mean, and there's a lot of, some research has been done on this. And they find that, the, firstly, the private charitable thing, which includes, of course, remittances to relatives, which is a large chunk of this. Uh, these are massive. They're, they're, they're much greater than, than the official flows, foreign aid, and what have you. And the effects, partly because it's much better targeted. You know, if, if, you, if I'm sending money to a relative... I mean, I'll make sure that it goes to someone who actually needs it, not in some sort of blanket sense with the government spend the thing. So it's much better targeted. It's the, all the effects of this private, this, uh, these private uh, flows from the West to the rest, those are much, much better than the, than the foreign aid, whatever the effects of foreign aid are. Uh, the charities, again, is a mixed bag. But, you know, some of the, I mean, I once did some work for Oxfam, which, which had a lot of projects in India. And these are a mixed bag, as you could expect. The trouble is, a lot of, the, a lot of these charities, certainly the larger they become, they become more and more like the public international multilateral banks or what have you, suffering the same problems, the same thing of transparency. You know, they become lords of poverty, private lords of poverty, now rather than the public ones. And therefore, I put them in the same, same group. But there are some charitables. I mean, a lot of medical ones. There's someone here, I think, who runs the medical ship. Is John here? Yeah, there he is. Talk to him. He runs these medical ships to Africa, which I think do tremendous amount of good. The AIDS initiative of, uh, what's his, Microsoft, Bill Gates, I think that is extremely valuable. So there are things which, can, which people can do, but they'd be very specific. And just this blanket thing, just throw money at it, does, doesn't work, whether it's private or public. Right here. I'm Matthew Dorowski from Lynn Westmoreland's office. Um, I just had a question for you, Mr. Noyland. Um, I was wondering what you would say the proper role of the World Bank is in world poverty, and um, should they increase their efforts to reduce poverty, or should they do anything differently? <laughs> but you didn't answer. Um, 
It's interesting. When I was reading the book, I was, I was quite struck by um, an observation that Deepak makes in the book because it, it echoed precisely the same distinction that I had made in testimony in front of the U.S. Congress in 1998, which is that the, the, the actual official name of the World Bank is the uh, IBRD, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. We, you know, speaking crudely, we're pretty good at reconstruction. We're not very good at development. So I think that there is probably a, a, a role for the World Bank either, either in its current form or somehow merged or, or you know, with the IMF or, or whatever. There is some role for some international public sector organization to deal with post-conflict reconstruction issues. And you can imagine past cases of civil wars in various countries. You can imagine perhaps future case of Syria or whoever inherits uh, North Korea after the current regime there finishes running the country into the ground. And, and I, it seems to me that, that reconstructing something that getting to a standard that had previously existed is not the same challenge of breaking completely new ground vis-a-vis -vis development. The other thing is, is that it's probably hard for a Washington-based audience to grasp, and perhaps improvements in information technology and reductions in transportation costs are, is eroding this, but I'm struck when I travel by the relative isolation that a lot of policymakers operate under in very poor countries. And it seems to me that there's probably a role for the World Bank, and I think Bob Zellick was trying to push it in this direction, for essentially being an information clearinghouse, um, or you know, kind of a consulting firm, showing people what is being done elsewhere, putting people in contact with their functional counterparts elsewhere who may have relevant experiences so that every, you know, guy in the health department of every African country or in Myanmar or wherever isn't, isn't you know, reconstructing or reinventing the wheel. Um, so I think that there is, um, there, there is certainly a role for some sort of organization, whether it be the World Bank or, or somebody else. I think what, what is less clear is whether the current emphasis on infrastructural lending um, is, is particularly important or particularly useful. Deepak, should we shut down the World Bank? And if we do, does that mean that all these experts will simply disappear into thin air and there won't be any development? No. Well, uh, I mean, when I, when I was writing the research program, of course, as you can imagine, I argue that the most important thing is exactly what you say. There should be a knowledge bank and the information role. The trouble, of course, is that uh, remember it's intergovernmental institution. Okay, so if you just say, if you just become a giant NBER, which effectively National Bureau of Economic Research, where you put all the thing, you'll become a, a trading house for all these ideas and you can access it whenever you like in the world. That diminishes the role of all these chaps who literally, you know, I mean, where, where would my finance secretary in the Indian Ministry of Finance, when they want to put him upstairs, where would he go? He can now become executive director of the World Bank. He gets a nice house, nice pension. So there's tremendous institutional interest in all the governments not changing, not changing this into a more modest role. Similarly, consultants, why do you need a public institution? I mean, McKinsey, all these consultants have a very good job. To the extent that the World Bank has an advantage, partly because, because of uh, well, convention, I can't remember whether it's a law or some World Banker can tell me, that they have access to information, private information, you know, which is various, but at least they can put it together, and they're slightly more systematic than national governments are. So that's a public good. You can put that in the public open domain. But this just diminishes the... You see, the point is, people all want... What is, what is this? Why are you having all these G20, G8 meetings? They all want to eat at top tables, the most boring things that you could possibly go to. Anyone who's actually gone to one of these meetings and has said, and said, you know, there's nothing. All you're doing is you're, you're declaiming to your friends and family, oh, I was there, I was rubbed shoulders with X, Y, Z. And the actual content there is the most boring, useless things you can. 
But you try ending these, you will not. Because these are the kudos, this is the status, this gives you all these positional goods, as someone called it. I mean, this is, so this is not going to end. The only thing is you can do less harm. That's all I say. That's all you hope that you can do less harm. And that means you diminish it as much as you possibly can. And then, you know, the country is receiving all this bad advice or whatever you like to call it. They're learning. They're not going to listen to it. So you give them a little thing because your nationals also benefit from it. So let them come, give them a nice house, give them a nice dinner, you know, chat to them. I don't waste any time on it. So I don't think it's going to disappear. I, I, you know, there are a lot of these institutions. Just think of, think of the useless international institutions, which people know are useless. They try to shut down it. ILO, UNESCO, two top contenders. Okay, they've done more harm than good. They, I, they tried to shut both the US, the Britain, they all tried to shut these down. Still going strong. Don't go to end. Now the World Bank or the IMF. But just limit their role so they don't do any harm. That's all I can say. Chuck, the use of, uh, I'll, I'll ask a quick question, and then we'll take another one. The use of randomized controlled trials has Jesus. become fashionable. And you spend some time in the book critiquing it. Uh, yet these are, this is an approach that uh, people are using to justify spending in vastly different uh, types of countries under different conditions after, around the world after one or two such uh, evaluations of the kind have been done. Can you say a little bit more about that, please? Well, the simple, I'll give you the simple answer to this. You know, they claim these are like the randomized controlled trials for medicine. I think it doesn't even work there. Let me give you one example of this. They had a randomized controlled trial for a drug for arthritis. Okay, the randomized controlled trial had a sample of people, I think, aged from 40 to 68, right? And they said, a oh, marvelous, tremendous thing. This drug was then generally prescribed to anyone with arthritis. They suddenly found that people above 68 were dropping dead of, of uh, you know, all the heart attacks, various other things. So they pulled the drug. So, you know, the human beings, and this is not true, people are now recognizing about medicine. Human beings are not like plots of land where you apply fertilizer, you can work out, you know, what is the right dose, and then, you know, and it's not going to answer back and try and change you from saying, no, I don't like your fertilizer, I'm going to take some other fertilizer. So none of this happens. And as a result, this is a completely useless technique which tells you nothing. And if you really want to choose investment projects, I mean, I spent my early part of my youth in project evaluation. It's all there. But that is given up. Why? Because very soon it became social cosmetic analysis, as they said. My favorite story in this we, I helped set up the project evaluation unit in the, Indian, in the Indian Planning Commission. One of the projects we evaluated was a huge iron ore mountain, which they were going to convert into iron ore pellets and sell it around the world. I was asked to evaluate this. Uh, big project. And uh, so I very, you know, honestly looked at it and said that the only way, the only way this said is completely, completely unprofitable. Indira Gandhi had done a deal with the Shah of Iran. This is now 74, 75. And the Shah of Iran, to be nice to India, give her indirect something under the table, agreed to buy these iron ore pellets for the next 20 years at three times or four times the world price. So then it looked viable. So I still remember my note. I said, well, this is fine. But what happens if the Shah of Iran falls? Now, that's a, that's a part of it, because he fell, so this is a good man. But I remember being going to, so when this came onto her desk, you know, because it's a huge project, she, I remember her going to, the only time I ever met her, she called me in, and she didn't even look up, she was reading. She said, I listened to you and canceled the what will be the effect of the results in this election? She mentioned some constituencies in the airport. So I looked baffled. I said, I said what constituency? Where, where is? So I said, I don't know idea at all. And dismissed me, and that was it. The project went ahead, and we have a huge behemoth. So these are all games. These are all ways to keep, you know, people who otherwise be all perfectly useless to do all sorts of things. Instead of, you know, they become bankers, now they become, what are they called? Random control trials, this thing or the other. Or they join various public institutions where they think they're doing good, but they're earning a really decent living. Good luck to them, but I mean, I don't think one should have any pretense that this is somehow in the public interest and that we should actually commend it.
right there. We have time for just a couple of more questions. John Paul Cattell is a lawyer here in Washington. As Deepak mentioned, I'm also a director of a global charity that delivers health care throughout Africa. Um, but on a separate point, uh, Deepak, I think you mentioned that the two fundamental conditions, particularly in Africa with these failed states, is order and security. Uh, otherwise, progress, growth really doesn't happen. Do you see any role at all for the West to intervene in any area of Africa to create order and security? Well, I'm very old-fashioned. I wrote a book called Praise of Empires. This is the time when the, when the Americans seem to be willing to fulfill the, the old British role. But it's quite clear to me that there is no, there's no will. They have the ability. They can do it if they wanted to. There's no, there's no reason. But the outcomes in Iraq and Afghanistan show to me quite clearly that this country is incapable of filling the imperial role. Now, the Chinese might, I mean, the Indians are going to get, the Chinese, the, all the others are not. The only Chinese hope that they'll fulfill this role. I hope it never comes to pass because the thought of the Chinese fulfilling this role <laughs> fulfills me with great fear and trepidation. I don't think anyone will accept this. So the question is, this is, I mean, in some senses, this is the old-fashioned route to create order. That is what imperial powers did. They maintained the pacts over a, over a particular region, and that allowed all these good things to happen. But these days, I think it's very, very difficult now, particularly there's the, the only superpower, quite clearly, domestic politics, whatever it is, does not permit this to happen. So this is not a viable option in the near future, alas, but that's it. Swami. Deepak, you spoke about the myths about poverty of people not realizing the extent to which poverty has declined. I think the problem is that poverty is a relative concept. Yep. When the moment you say, you know, compared with 1820, people say, why the hell are you comparing with 1820? Standards keep improving. They say, you know, standards of education of my clothes of my uh, shoes have improved. Why not the poverty line? In India, you would have noticed there was the claim of uh, an improvement. I mean, they, they had a new poverty line, which was higher than the old one. And there was a huge complaint that this is not high enough and they're going to appoint another committee to make one even higher. In these circumstances, given that poverty, surely the Bible is correct and poverty will always be with us. And the poverty industry, therefore, will always be a flourishing one, regardless <laughs> of all the critiques that you have done. Uh, the second question I would have would be uh, about Africa or about developing countries. You know, the idea that good governance, free trade policies, these are the key issues. If you actually look at the experience of Africa, it seemed to be doing quite well in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, really fast rates of growth. Then there was a complete collapse in the 1980s and 1990s. And once again, strident growth in the noughties from 2000 onwards. And if you, I mean, I remember William Easterly writing a book called The Elusive Quest for Growth in 1998 or 90, and tip, as typically happens, the moment the book is written, growth begins again, uh, as happens in these books. And if you say, what is the most important thing? Was it uh, World Bank? Was it uh, institutions? It turns out to be just the terms of trade of commodities. There was a commodity boom in the 60s and 70s. These guys seemed to be doing damn well. Then there was a commodity collapse in the 80s and 90s. And no matter what you did, they seemed to go downhill. And then without any obvious change of anything, when the commodity cycle picked up in the 2000s, they seemed to be doing well. So in a lot of the so-called development economics, I mean, you're not focusing on that, that you know, there is nothing better and simpler than the commodity cycle to change uh, the entire development outlook of these countries. Well, on, on the first thing, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, you know, look, the, the, if, if, if my comparison with the, with the salvation, I mean, you can always, always change the notion. And you're right, poverty line will keep shifting. And America, the poverty line here is defined and it's been changing over, over time. So you know, you have a poverty industry here, so that sense will never go away. You're right. Now, on this, this thing about uh, Africa, you're absolutely right. The only difference is, I mean, that's why when we did this Lal Mint book, we call natural resources the precious bane of Africa. So, you know, the trouble is that it's good, it gives you a rise in income, but then it also creates 
institutions because all the rent-seeking institutions grab the rents, which make it difficult to use these productively. One of the good things which I think has happened is partly because of this disaster, you know, misuse of natural resource rents in the 60s and 70s. Since then, the ways that, I mean, Nigerians, I know this woman, I've forgotten her name. She's trying desperately hard to use some, something like the Norwegian these sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, which can't be tapped to actually do it. Now, whether it'll stick or not, we can't tell. But at least they realize the problem. That's half the way of getting there. And it seems to me at this time around, I mean, there'll be a lot of wastage. There'll be all the old problems continue. But there's some hope that some of this will actually be put to good use to create some sort of you know, long-term growth prospects. Because that's the only hope. I mean, if you, otherwise, we keep having these cycles, and you know, they're going to keep... They'll have a boom and bust every, every few years. But you're absolutely right. The two periods are right. And Easterly was completely wrong about Africa because he's caught out. But all of us are caught out by trends. You must never, that's, you must never ride the trend. Anyone who says China is going to take over the world today is going to be in for a terrible shock. Well, I think there's something to be said about policies and institutions and their effects as well. And as some of you know, we do quite a bit of work on measuring those in terms of economic freedom. And the, there we do find, when you look at countries across the world, a pretty strong relationship between policies and institutions and uh, growth, which is not to say that uh, the commodity booms don't have an effect on, on all countries. But I think that uh, one of the things to always keep in mind when looking at these issues is the, the long-term uh, growth patterns of countries and not just the last 10 years which can be very misleading and lead a lot of people down the wrong path, as I think uh, is happening in much of the world today. But we've run out of time, and I want to thank all of you for coming, and uh, please help me in thanking our speakers today. <laughs> <laughs>